Sam Tracy. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And thanks for tuning in to Season 5 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs, including policy, science, culture, and so much more. This show is produced by Twid Media, whose members are all alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome nonprofit working to end the war on drugs. We also produce a weekly email newsletter and have some other exciting projects on the way. You can check them all out on our website, thisweekindrugs.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for a roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing marijuana legalization in California with Lauren Mendelson, an associate attorney at the law office of Omar Figueroa in Northern California. Thanks for coming on, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I think probably the majority of our listeners, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, know that California legalized marijuana in the recent election, and it's... We are, wow, less than two weeks away, I guess, from January 1st when things are supposed to get started. Um, so I guess the first question is, how prepared do you think the state is for, for this? I mean, are we going to see the majority of places actually starting on January 1st? That's a great question. So honestly, most of the state is not going to have... Um, legal weed for people 21 and up beginning on January 1st. There's going to be very few places within the state, actually, uh, where that's possible. And that's because California's um, marijuana laws, as well as their medical marijuana laws, are um, based on a dual licensing structure. So you need to have both a local permit and a state license to operate legally. So if you are located someplace where the local government has said we're not allowing marijuana businesses, you can't get a state license because there is no local permit for you to get. So there's very few, um, if you actually look at California, it's mostly a desert of places that have prohibited some form of marijuana, either medical, adult use, or both, with a few oases that are essentially the bigger cities. And um, a few other places um, that are maybe more uh, economically struggling that have looked to cannabis as a way to revive their um, economy. But most places um, are not going to have, um, you know, recreational cannabis outlets open on January 1st or even even most of next year. Um, there is a shift, you know, more and more jurisdictions are updating their local ordinances each day. Um, and so this is changing. It's a very dynamic issue, um, but it's not going to be possible everywhere. The state is, you know, fully, you know, ready to go live on January 1st. Not everything is going to be ready to go live, however. For example, the um, seed to sell tracking system uh, metric that's going to allow regulators to you know, essentially track where the plant, where that product has come from and be able to assist with product recalls and whatnot, that's not going to be up and running January 1st. Um, It's not even quite sure, you know, when it'll be up and running in a few months, essentially, but it's kind of a work in progress. Um, And so there's going to be certain places that have already been locally authorized, essentially, that are going to be able to apply right now for their state license uh, to operate on January 1st. Um, but most places, it's it's not going to be possible. Um, so it, it is really interesting seeing how different places are choosing to take different positions on this based on, you know, really what the will of the, the voters are in that city or county, as well as a number of other factors that, 
impact the decision of whether to allow or prohibit uh, cannabis businesses. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that it's kind of a, a desert with a few oases. Um, and, you know, from what I know about California, I guess my guess would be that sort of the areas that still have some form, some or both form of marijuana uh, prohibited would be sort of the interior part of California. Um, is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, for the most part, that is accurate. And there are a few places within the Central Valley, for example, that are allowing it in one form or another. Um, but for the most part, you know, the Central Valley and the, the interior parts of these states um, are where most of the bans are. And politically, those also tend to be the more conservative parts of the state. So it's it kind of makes sense when you think of it that way. Um, but, you know, that's that's just how it is. Sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I guess we, I wanted to talk a little bit because you recently were on a panel at the Emerald Cup um, mm-hmm. and it was titled From Prison to Profit, What Happens to Cannabis POWs After Legalization? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering first if you could tell us a little bit about the Emerald Cup um, for listeners who might not be that familiar. And then second, if you can talk a little bit about the panel. Sure. Well, the Emerald Cup is a uh, cannabis event, a uh, cannabis festival, so to speak, competition um, based in Northern California. It's been around for a number of years. It started out, it was up in uh, Mendocino County. Um, and the past few years, it's been down here in Sonoma County in, in my hometown of Santa Rosa. And um, it really features um, organic outdoor cannabis um, cultivators, um, and it's a kind of a showcase for the growers to come and uh, show their products, not just flour, but concentrates and, and edible products. Um, and it was also, there's music. It was a great uh, kind of social event. It was um, essentially a farmer's market for cannabis. Hmm. Um, and now in this new regulated era, things are going to change next year. Um, They are planning to do it again. It is going to be possible to have the cannabis event. There's a new license available from the state for cannabis events. Mm. Um, But the way that it's going to work is going to be a bit different in the future. Um, And I'm hoping that the state will implement ways to allow um, farmers to be able to sell directly to consumers. It was kind of like, like I mentioned, a farmer's market for cannabis. And the way the regulations are currently worded, you'd have to have a retailer license to vend at these events. And most cultivators are not seeking a retailer license. It's uh, another uh, other sets of requirements. And it's a different agency that's regulating that. And and so, um, you know, I'm hoping the state creates some new kind of um, event-only retail license or something like that to allow many of these farmers to continue to vend at these events. Um, but, you know, that's besides the point. The state's going to figure it all out. Um, and I, I, I have uh, faith in them to figure out a workable solution. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. But anyway, it was a great event. Um, and they also featured lots of really great panels over two days, panels, um, workshops, both from the social justice aspect as well as um, cultivation techniques and science and health. And so it was a really, a really wonderful assortment of speakers and panels and whatnot. Um, and I had the tremendous honor of being on a panel with some incredible rock star cannabis mm-hmm. advocates. Um, Chris Conrad is um, an extremely well-known cannabis expert and author um, and advocate here in California and elsewhere. 
Um, and uh, Heather Burke is an amazing rock star cannabis lawyer. And Diane Goldstein is a um, uh, former uh, lieutenant. She's part of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition at a Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And she's been advocating for drug policy reform, you know, on the international level for uh, a while. So I was honored to speak among them about how we can continue to help people who are suffering from cannabis prohibition, even though cannabis has been legalized here in California. And there's, you know, different ways that we can go about that. Um, one is helping people clear their record from past cannabis convictions through expungement clinics and just, you know, assisting them um, with through that process. Um, other ways are, you know, getting involved in other states. We, a lot of people in California feel very safe in this bubble here. Um, and uh, many of them don't think to direct their advocacy efforts to other states where people are still suffering from uh, policies that are more stringent than they are here. Um, and so, you know, those are just a couple of the things that we were talking about. How, to, how do we make sure that this industry is accessible to everyone, especially the people that have suffered the most from marijuana prohibition? Um, so those are just some of the things we talked about. It's a really great panel. There's certainly ways that we can keep pushing, you know, the ball forward, even though we've already achieved, you know, a good progress mark here in California. Uh, absolutely. Um, I have a couple of questions about the panel, but I do want to say first that, yeah, we've had Diane and Chris both on the podcast before um, to talk about various things. And I would completely agree that they are rock stars. And so our <laughs> listeners should be familiar. And actually, if they want to, if folks want to go back and listen to a little bit more about Prop 64 and what it does, um, episode 60 is where we talked to Mickey Norris and Chris Conrad. Um, about that. And so I highly recommend that if you're interested in this, but getting back to the topic of your panel, um, does, I know that amendment 64 was, is, is pretty progressive as far as social justice goes. Um, so what kind of, um, I guess things like expungement or, um, being banned from working in the industry because of previous convictions. Um, what, I guess, how would you describe um, social justice as it relates to maybe what you talked about in the panel? Um, sure. Yeah. So I think in terms of Prop 64, you know, it had some flaws. And what we at my office, we like to say that Proposition 64 quasi legalized. Uh, cannabis for adult use in California. It did not legalize it across the board. There are still a number of cannabis-related offenses that are misdemeanors or felonies or infractions. So it's not like everything goes. And it is important to to know your rights and to know what the law is, um, because you can still get in trouble for certain things. But one of the a couple of the good things about Proposition 64 was it created a new avenue for expungement, specifically for cannabis-related offenses that were changed um, as a result of Proposition 64. They were either no longer a crime or they were less severe of a crime. And it created a very a relatively straightforward process. It's a one-page form um, that an individual can fill out on their own if they're comfortable doing so, or they can hire a lawyer to help them with it and file in their in the, co- in the county that they were convicted in. Um, and if they're eligible, it's, you know, it has to be granted. It's not like, you know, the other side can come back and say, well, I don't think that they, this should be granted. If, if you're eligible, mm-hmm. it's going to be granted. 
Um, and so that's one of the wonderful uh, things that Proposition 64 has done. We've helped yeah. a few people through that process in our office. And another have, one of the... Sorry, I yeah, just have of course. one quick question. Um, sure. I'm curious about, you know, you said people can do it on their own or hire a lawyer. If people do it on their own, um, is there a fee? Um, there is not a filing fee for that. There might be fees um, at that are assessed at the time it's granted, depending on if they owe any court fees or something like that. But there's not okay. a fee to just file the form. Okay. Yeah. And um, I would. There are some websites that are, have good resources about how to um, how to do that on your own. A lot of people are not familiar with the process of filing mm -hmm. something in court and serving a copy on you know the district attorney, for example. And it sounds complicated. It's really not. It's just a matter of making copies and giving them to the right people. Um, but mm -hmm. for people who aren't familiar with that process, um, there's w things that can help you figure it out online. And you know, one of the only reasons that you might want to have a lawyer through the process is, let's say you had some other things on your record or there may be some something about your past where you're concerned that it might not be granted sure. um you know a case like that you might want to have legal help but if it's a very straightforward you know you were cultivating three plants without a medical cannabis recommendation that used to be a felony now it's totally legal that should be you know a, an easy one to get done by yourself if you just fill out the form correctly Perfect. Thank you. I was just curious about, yeah, some of the, the barriers. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, please continue with what you were going to say before I interrupted you. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I was just going to say that the other one of the other good things about Proposition 64 is it uh, has another provision saying that the state cannot uh, deny someone a cannabis business license solely based on a past drug-related conviction, with some exceptions. Um, but the exceptions are things like violent crimes or um, things that are pretty bad. There's some enumerated offenses where you are ineligible from a license, but simply having a past drug-related conviction for possession or even transportation, as long as it doesn't have any enhancements, um, that by itself is not going to preclude you from having a cannabis license, which is really great because all these people who have past marijuana convictions for cultivation or possession or, you know, possession for sale, um, they're not excluded from the industry that they might actually be very useful in. Um, you know, it's kind of when you see other states and certain cities within California have passed local rules that basically say no one with a past cannabis conviction can get access to the industry. And um, I've I have argued both that that's inconsistent with state law and also that they're essentially barring the the best people from the industry from participating in it so oh thank you yeah that is there there's a lot of interesting stuff there and I think it's but it's nice to see um to see somewhere that is is however however much we you know we're always gonna gonna want more and be asking for more progressive but it seems like this is a really great step in the right direction um especially mm -hmm. for somewhere as large as California, that's definitely going to have an impact on the rest of the states, but also probably globally. Absolutely. Um, so I know we talked about some of the geographic stuff before, and you'd mentioned places that aren't doing particularly well economically are some of the communities that have embraced marijuana um, at a recreational level. Um, and I know one place that people might be familiar with that um, is kind of known for 
marijuana and has been for a long time is Humboldt County or sort of the, the Green Triangle or the Emerald Triangle. Um, and I'm wondering, and it seems like there was a lot of kind of internal conflict um, about Prop 64 in that area when when people were voting on it and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how things have developed in that area, um, in areas that, you know, have historically been known for marijuana and are now facing a, a big shift and some new competition and, and basically just an entirely new landscape. Sure. So um, I've had the privilege of living pretty close to the Emerald Triangle for the past year. Um, I'm originally from the East Coast, but I've lived in California for the past few years, and um, I've lived near the Emerald Triangle, which is uh, Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity counties uh, for the past year, and I have some clients up there. And um, these, this is an area where there are second, third, um, in some cases even fourth, I don't know about fourth, but definitely like I've met a lot of third-generation cannabis farmers. Um, and wow. this is their family's way of life. This is how they support their community. And um, in, in some instances, the whole community is, is centered around um, cannabis. And so, um, and it was always a, a small um, kind of local family values, mom and pop shop kind of um, model. And so a lot of these smaller farmers uh, were resistant to um, a regulatory scheme that allowed very large uh, corporations to come in that placed heavy taxes and fees and regulatory burdens on um, individuals in the in the space. Um, and so there was opposition um, from that community. I do believe that Humboldt and Mendocino, I do believe the whole Emerald Triangle ultimately voted yes on Proposition 64. Okay. Um, and um, but there there has been opposition since since then within the community in terms of how legalization has has played out since the vote happened. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of costs associated with bringing your business into compliance. There are heavy taxes and um, fees imposed on a lot of these individuals, and um, for many of them, it's going to be it's going to be too costly to survive in the regulated market. And so we see a lot of people who are um, sad and, and wondering how they're going to be able to support their family now that this is what they've they've done their whole life and they've you know their community is built on. Um, so that is um, it's interesting to watch that happen. Um, there was also a, a belief within much of the community that larger um, scale licenses and larger cultivation operations wouldn't be allowed for the first few years, um, and then recently. It was revealed that that's not necessarily the case. The the Department of Food and Agriculture is going to be allowing grows um, more than one acre, not necessarily in the same place, but uh, essentially opening the door for uh, large companies to get as you know as many cultivation licenses as they want. In some sense, um, and so there was a lot of individuals who felt that the state kind of betrayed them on that after mm-hmm. giving them this belief that well we'll keep it small for the first few years. Um, so there is a lot of um, there's a lot of tension and a lot of um, uncertainty right now. I mean, I can just give you some statistics. Um, you know, within the county I live in, Sonoma County, which is not 
part of the Emerald Triangle, but it's right below it. Um, there was an estimated like three to 5,000 cannabis cultivators here. And since the county started accepting uh, applications for cannabis permits in July, they've only received 110 applications wow. because the costs are so incredibly high and people are afraid still of coming out of the woodwork. They're afraid of enforcement and the taxes on cultivators are really high. Um, and um, so people just aren't, they're not incentivizing compliance. Um, in Mendocino County, which is part of the Emerald Triangle, they've received, um, as of the end of November, 767 applications, and they've probably got five to 10,000, if not more, cultivators in that county. Um, Humboldt County has gotten a little more because their program has been up and running a little longer. Um, but even in places like, um, like that, for example, even in Mendocino County, um, their medical, their, their cultivation program is still only medical, so there's not going to be any adult use cultivation happening there in the beginning of the year. Um, and so, I don't know, it's, it is very interesting to see how these different communities are dealing with um, with regulation and how some people are, are excited to, to enter the regulated. Most of them want to, um, to, to follow the law and do things the right way. And the reason they're not coming forward is because the cost of compliance and cost of coming forward is just going to be so high. A lot of people are just hoping to squeak it out as long as possible. And that's, and it's, you know, I can understand why they're going to want to do that, but they're starting January 1st, the state's going to start um, enforcement, pretty heavy enforcement, I think. And, and essentially if you're operating a cannabis business without a state license after January 1st, um, you're subject to enforcement because you're in violation of the law. And um, it is yet to be seen how exactly what that's going to look like. But anyone who's operating an unlicensed business starting January 1st is in hot water, basically. So um, the, the challenge now is getting local jurisdictions to hurry up and issue their local permits for all the people that have applied and are waiting to go through their local pipeline, essentially, so they can get their state license. And it's just a lot of puzzle pieces that are having to fit together in, um, in not a lot of time right now. So we'll we'll see. Um, it's one of those things where I'm constantly tracking what's happening at the city level and the county level in a bunch of different places, and they're all going different directions. So it's it's really um, it really keeps you on your toes, and it's really important to um, always keep in mind that things are things are going to be different. Just the way that the state set it up, it's going to vary place by place, and some people think that's a good thing. Some people think it's a bad thing. Um, I tend to think it's okay as long as you can find enough places where there is access um, for everyone. You know, if a jurisdiction is overwhelmingly against cannabis businesses there, well, that's what the people of that city want. I can understand that. But if the city is is torn and it's the people in power that are, you know, deciding based on their personal biases, that's what we can't have. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Um. So I guess two kind of follow-up questions, but one that I want to start with here. Um, we haven't, we've talked a lot about businesses, but we haven't talked about um, home grow. And mm -hmm. I mean, we did a little bit, but I'm curious how, how many plants people are allowed to have um, personally, whether it's med medical and recreationally, I guess. Sure. So, um, Every residence, you're allowed to have six plants per residence, um, and that's as a result of Proposition 64, regardless of whether or not anyone there is a patient. Um, and cities and counties are not allowed to totally prohibit you from doing that, but they can place reasonable restrictions on that. For example, 
prohibiting you from cultivating the plants outside. Um, and so, and I, I honestly, I, I kind of take a little bit of an issue with this. It's expensive to properly grow plants inside the, um, lighting and the ventilation that's required. And mm -hmm. a plant is supposed to be grown outside, especially if you live in a place where there's lots of sunlight and whatnot. So, mm -hmm. um, I think unless you're in a very densely populated area where the odor is really bothering the neighbors or something like that, then. Um, I, I think that cities should allow it outside, but that's just my view. So uh, state law says they can make you do it inside. Now, in terms of um, patients, what Proposition 64 did not do is it didn't impact a qualified patient's rights to cultivate, possess, and use as much medical cannabis as is needed for their medical needs, basically. And so this is um, a case-by-case -case basis. There's not a specific amount of cannabis that each patient is um, is allowed to have. It's, it's based on what their doctor says they need. Um, and so, however, that's something that comes in when you get a court. So okay. the, the medical cannabis defense in California is an affirmative, I mean, it's not a firm defense. It's a, it's a defense that you get to raise in court. Um, and, um, but it's not, it's not a, a defense to being arrested. It's only a defense once you've already been arrested and you're in court, then you can say, I'm a patient and I'm allowed to have this much cannabis. Um, but and so it's it's kind of unclear. I haven't heard yet of um, cases where there's let's say there's been uh, 12 plants in a house and six were for someone who is just 21 and over and mm -hmm. another six were for someone else who was a patient. Um, I'm 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 curious whether that's happened yet and how the courts are going to um, determine that. But um, under my interpretation of the law, if you're a patient, you're allowed to have as much as you need for your medical needs, even if that's more than six plants. Um, and so that wasn't impacted by Prop 64. And you don't have to get a license to do that because it's not commercial. If you're just growing for your personal use or for the use of a patient that you're a caregiver for, or if, you know, you're growing for yourself and you want to share a little bit with your friend, that's okay. And you don't need a commercial license to do that. It's only once you're actually, um, your, your cannabis is entering the commercial market that you have to get a, a cannabis business license from the state. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, mm -hmm. And that is a pretty good segue into one of the last questions I wanted to ask since we're getting close to time here. Um, we've been talking a lot about the licenses and I'm curious how, I think I've seen some numbers, um, but have any been approved? Have they, I, I feel like I've seen that they've started approving some temporary licenses. Yeah. So as of the other day, there were about 20 um, temporary licenses that the state has already issued to some businesses, many of them to um, this one business in Santa Cruz. Um, and so that's exciting. Um, and I know a few other businesses that have said they're ready um, to get that temporary license. So that's good news. There are going to be some places um, with licenses starting on January 1st. Um, the temporary license application process is pretty simple. It's free. It's done online. Um, you have to have a local permit first before you can get a state license. So only people that have already kind of gotten that local approval can even apply for that. Um, but yeah, it's exciting to see the state is gearing up. It's going to issue them. The state, the state agency is involved in in regulating this and issuing these licenses. They're they're actually doing a really good job. Um, and I think they, I know that they realize this is going to be a huge market and a and a huge opportunity for the state. Um, so they're doing everything in their power to make sure this. It's running smoothly come January, so I give them some credit for that. That is extremely encouraging. Um, yeah, and I guess on that on that same note, the last thing I really wanted to ask 
since we've been talking about cannabis kind of the whole time, um, is if there's anything else drug policy related in California that our listeners should be aware of. Yeah, I think um, one thing that they should be aware of is that there is an effort to um, encourage the creation of um, safe injection sites. And in California, um, I, I believe there might already be some, I'm not positive, but I know there's certainly some in other states and other countries, um, Canada, for example, and they've been very effective in, um, you know, in responding to the public health crisis of opioid overdoses and, and people who don't have um, clean needles or a safe space to um, inject drugs, if that's what they're you know doing. I think it's important to not stigmatize people um, for their addiction, but rather to help them with it. And oftentimes that starts with um, allowing people to do what they're going to do in a safe way and then providing them with whatever resources they need to stop if that's what they're choosing to do or to at least do it in a safe way. So that's one thing. I also wanted to make um, listeners aware there's a really wonderful needle exchange program down in Orange County, California, the Orange County Needle Exchange Program. Um, I was involved a little bit with it and helping it start up a few years ago. It's It was started by a group of UC Irvine med students, um, and they're facing some local opposition from the city of Santa Ana, where they've been operating for years, saving lives and providing um, harm reduction services. So um, there's they've got some petitions going around right now to ask the city to allow them to keep operating. Um, and I would encourage anyone who wants to join their name, either name of that petition to uh, reach out to me, or maybe they can reach out to you, Sarah, and you can put them in touch with me. Um, but that's um, something that I think would be really great. Um, and of course, if you are in California and you're operating a cannabis business, your call to action would be to, to get a state license as soon as possible. <laughs> and uh, feel free to call the law office of Omar Figueroa if you need help doing that. Perfect. Well, yeah, you beat me to it. I was going to ask about the call to action, but there they are. And we, yeah, absolutely. We will definitely um, post a link to your law offices on our website and people can definitely feel free to email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. Yeah, gmail. And I should know our email address. That's embarrassing. Um, but That's okay. people can definitely email us and we will go ahead and put them in contact with you. Um, but thank Fantastic. you so much. This has been really enlightening and I hope our listeners will agree. Um, but thank you. Yeah. So thank you for joining us. And maybe uh, after things have been in effect for a while, you can come back on and talk to us about all of that. Sounds great. I'd love to. Thank you for having me. Um, and, you know, thank you for continuing to put out this really great podcast. I'm a big supporter of SSDP. For those of you who don't know, um, I used to be on the board and I was a chapter leader and member myself back in the day. So um, if you don't know about SSDP, then man, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but you should, you should check out SSDP as well. Absolutely. So. I think that's a great third call to action. But thank you again. And this has been Lauren Mendelson from an associate attorney at the law offices of Omar Figueroa. Thank you.
Thanks again for listening to Season 5 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and me, Sarah Merrigan, and produced by Chris Harris. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that new episodes will be sent straight to you. If you really liked this episode, you can help other people discover us by writing a quick review in iTunes or wherever you're listening. And if you absolutely love this episode and want to support our work, you can make a one-time contribution using PayPal, become a monthly supporter on Patreon, or even sponsor an episode. For links to those and to learn more about our other projects, head on over to thisweekindrugs.org.